Uh, my name is Phyllis Hendry. I'm a pediatric emergency physician. I work uh, for University of Florida in Jacksonville. We have a very uh, large uh, inner city urban teaching hospital emergency department that sees about 90,000 patients a year. I practice clinically pediatric emergency medicine, but I, I'm over research for emergency medicine and have a grant looking at pain assessment and management, which is kind of how I got into this. And then I met my colleague here today, Alexis, who is in New Jersey. So you're going to have the two extremes of accents today. Um, <laughs> and uh, found out we have a lot of the same similar interests, and she's doing some really exciting things. And we both teach residents. I teach emergency medicine, pediatric residents. We teach you know, PAs, nursing students. We're very much a teaching hospital, as, as does Alexis. And we know that often our students and our residents and our colleagues really like to learn by cases. It makes it you know, much more fun. So we're going to be going over some uh, case scenarios in pain management. And just a second here. There we go. Uh, we don't really have any uh, disclosures except, as I mentioned, the pain assessment and management initiative and some of the materials we may mention you know, may be on that site. But one of the things we wanted to start out, because these all are emergency department-based cases, is, is what our audience is. This is the first time that we've been to pain week, and it's also my understanding the first time they've added an emergency department um, track to pain week. So um, does anyone here work in an emergency department? Okay, yay, yay, okay. We were just saying we need to get the word out to our emergency medicine colleagues, okay. Um, how many are physicians, nurses, psychologists, pharmacists? Okay, a lot of pharmacists, okay. And uh, okay, well, we're, we're glad you're here, especially um, this early in the morning. Okay, so these are our, our learning objectives. We're gonna go over some difficult pain management scenarios that we see in the ED, talk about the importance of vital signs, and we're gonna, all of our cases will have a little bit of a patient safety focus. So I wanna give you a little bit of a case context for what the emergency department is like. And um, again, I know some of you are familiar with the ED, but if you're not, you know, we're a very different setting. We do see a lot of pain. There's estimates that up to 78% of all the patients we see in the ED have some pain-related complaint. Also, a lot of our 911 calls are for pain-related complaints. We work very closely with EMS and our paramedics. But at the same time, we receive minimal training in pain management. Now, that's across the board for physicians. I think it's the same for everyone except maybe the pharmacist. And one of my favorite quotes is that veterinary schools have five more, five times the amount of pain education training than, than physicians do in medical school. But we're working on that. We're also very, very crowded environment. You don't ever hear anyone say, hey, I went into the ED and I was in and out in 15 minutes. You know, that just doesn't happen. We see a variety of patients, a range of acuity levels. So we may be seeing, uh, you know, a toddler that was in a car accident with a fracture to an 80-year-old with a lot of chronic illness, um, you know, or a sickle cell patient. There's just a huge variety of diseases that we see. And we do it very sporadically. So I may see someone for 30 seconds, throw out some orders, make a few decisions. Then I go do some other things, and then I come back. And so I may have five or 10 different interactions with this patient and their care versus going in and sitting down and spending you know, maybe 10 minutes with them and kind of getting the entire history and physical. So um, there's a lot of distraction, a lot of room for error. We're also under tremendous pressure to see patients fast. 
and to not have them come back. There are financial penalties now if any of our patients are readmitted within 30 days. Our administration looks at our, our you know, triage, our, our door to discharge time, and we're doing that while, you know, um, trying to also provide good and compassionate care and, and make sure no one's hurt. So we use a system called triage. Again, emergency medicine really started. I'm from the military back from uh, the Vietnam days. A lot of what you see in EDs and EMS comes from our military background. So all EDs have some kind of system um, called triage. And so this, we're going to start out with a case called triage trickery. So I'm going to talk about the, the two ends of the spectrum, triage and discharge planning, and then Alexis is going to come in and give you some of the cases in between. And we were saying earlier at breakfast, we're both walkers, and but we, we don't want to walk off the stage. So if you see me looking, I'm making sure I'm not walking off here. So again, you know, one is, you know, red, bad, kind of like the red light, green light. And some systems have a one through three and some one through five. So here's our first case for triage. We have an 18-year-old uh, black male transported by rescue for sickle cell pain. And we usually hear a report coming out on the radio if you just happen to hear that report. So the paramedic, you know, give a report on the radio. He comes in, talks to the triage nurse. And remember, a lot of our patients, the physician hasn't seen them. Even the nurses in the back haven't seen them. It's the tri that person doing triage that's doing the first intake. So his report is, took one dose of pain meds about four hours ago, didn't even try anything else. You know the usual. And then it usually goes on like that, you know, um, just looking for drugs or says they're allergic to morphine or, you know. So we tend to get a little biased because we do deal with a very difficult populations. But we also deal with a lot of, you know, good people also. So he's like, you know, he hasn't even called his doctor. So the triage nurse comes back and tells the resident physician um, and the nursing staff, 18-year-old um, sickle cell patient in room four on narco looking for drugs. The resident tells Ma, the attending physician, frequent flyer, sickle cell patient in room four. He doesn't look like he's in pain to me. And again, there's a lot of variations of the story. So sometimes we just hear the disease and we automatically go back to maybe the last patient we saw with that. So I go into the room kind of with an attitude because one, I like to do pediatric emergency medicine. My chairman made a decision several years ago that we would also see patients 18 to 20 years old, which I don't like. So anytime anyone's 19 to 20, I sometimes have a little attitude. So, so I go into the room, and I've learned to, to trust my, my gut feeling. So I go in, and, you know, it's kind of an average-looking patient, nothing that really stands out at me. But I kind of have this little feeling when I start asking questions. And, you know, one of the best things to do is just ask some general things. You know, when was the last time you were in the hospital? When did you get your last prescription? You know, who's your doctor? Have you ever been here before? So I start asking. And over the course of a few minutes, something is not adding up. So one, he's never been hospitalized before. He does have an old, you know, pain medication prescription, but it's in another city where he lives and attends college. You know, he's in my city. Um, because he's visiting his grandparents for some time for the summer. He does have a hematologist that treats his sickle cell disease, again, in the, in the city where he goes to college. And um, so he's not kind of turning out to be the patient that I was presented, you know, at triage. And, you know, I forgot the whole story, but I think he took one dose of his medication, didn't realize that he could take another dose, was having more pain, no one was home, he didn't have a car, so he called 911 and ended up in the emergency department. And oh, by the way, 
he's an honor student at the University of Florida, which the average admission GPA is a 4.2. So this is not, you know, it's not really quite fitting, fitting the picture. And one of the good things about the electronic medical record is that we can go back and look at previous visits. So about this time at shift change, a new resident goes on, and he's like, hey, Dr. Hendry, um, I just looked him up. He doesn't even have sickle cell disease. You know, he had another hemoglobinopathy. So again, just kind of the summary of this case is we do ED triage very rapidly, and it's not even always that you're biased or you're you know, trying to think negatively about a patient. You're just busy. And with the electronic medical record now, I don't know how our triage nurses get anything done. If you look at the litany of questions they have to ask, meanwhile, there's you know, 10, 15 other patients waiting to be triaged. You know, do you feel like killing yourself? Are you on any medications? When was your last menstrual period? Are you pregnant? Could you be pregnant? Are your shots up to date? You know, and in the middle of that is, do you have pain and what's your score? So it's not surprising we don't always get a correct triage history. And EMS personnel have the same problem. They have other calls that are waiting. Um, there's also, um, you know, a, a lot of burnout in our specialty as it is, is with most of you. So if you've had negative experiences, if you practice a long time, it, it's easy not to think with an open mind. So bottom line, always take your own history, always, always ask open-ended questions. Um, so then let's move to the other opposite end of the spectrum, which is the devil is in the discharge planning. So medical legally, what happens to the patient after the ED discharge is really just as important as what happens in the ED. So I completed my PDM, I did pediatrics and I did a PDM fellowship. I completed that in 1991 and I've been um, you know, practicing since then. And if I look back over time, what are the cases that maybe almost got me in trouble? I mean, I knock on wood, where's wood? I've never been sued, but you know, that have maybe been a red flag. It's usually something that happened at triage or something that happened you know, related to discharge with a patient maybe not understanding when to come back or not getting the correct instructions. So it is very important. So the patient has to be deemed safe for discharge, especially after they've received any type of analgesic or if they've done something we do a lot in the ED called procedural sedation analgesia. So we see a lot of patients with, you know, with fractures, with burns, with foreign bodies, abscesses, we give them some type of analgesia or sedation, do a procedure, and then they go home. So if you get procedural sedation, Joint Commission has a whole laundry list of things you have to meet before they can go home. But if you're just giving a pain med, the, the guidelines are not as clear. Um, the discharge um, plan is especially crucial when we're dealing with unfunded patients. And where do unfunded patients come? They come to the emergency department. And even if they have funding, you know, I have, I have friends, they've got money, insurance, but they, you know, they can't get into a pain clinic. They may not get into their primary care physician, you know, for a week or two. So there's often long delays for appointments. And we have a limited time, although we'd love to sit down for 15 minutes and talk about a pain uh, discharge plan. We really don't have the time to do that. So let's go over two cases uh, related to discharge planning. So the first one is a 74-year-old who arrives via EMS. He's got left hip pain after falling from his front porch steps. So the EMS report is that the patient was discharged about an hour ago from, from the hospital. Uh, with, and he had originally come in with an ankle sprain. And when he first came in, they thought he had a fracture, so they'd given him some morphine. It turned out with his x-rays, he didn't. He just had a sprain. I think he was probably also on blood thinners. 
So he's, he needs to go home. It's late at night, and he doesn't see well at night, so he takes a cab home. And he's on crutches with his ankle wrapped up. He's trying to walk up the porch steps, wipes out, and falls. So now he's back in the ED, and on the second visit, he's found to have a hip fracture, abrasions, and contusions. So what happens when you have an elderly patient and a fall? And then you throw in some other comorbidities and blood thinners, what happens? Not good, right? Yeah, yeah. they're, they're going to have a head bleed. They're going to have a, And if you, if you look at the statistics, especially if you can get into their 80s, the morbidity and mortality is really high. Sometimes it's just a spiraling. They get admitted, and then it's just kind of the, the beginning of the end. And actually, when you look back over this patient's past, you know, if you went into his electronic medical record and looked back, he'd actually fallen three times in the last two months. He had been in several times. So he probably was not a good person you know, to send home in a cab. Okay, case two. 7 a.m. shift change. Um, there's a recently discharged 18-year-old female who's carried in the door of the ED after passing out in the hospital parking lot and hitting her head. Uh, she's now pale, sleepy. You know, she is oriented times three. Her face is bleeding. You know, it's pretty obvious she's had a significant fall. It turns out she was seen in the ED overnight for a miscarriage, bleeding, and pretty significant abdominal pain. She'd been there quite a while, you know, let's say eight hours. You know, she'd had some laboratory studies. She'd had an ultrasound. She'd waited on a GYN consult. She'd gotten some morphine about 5 a.m. and was discharged at 6.30 a.m. On further history and chart review, you find out her vital signs were not repeated at discharge. And, you know, there are joint commission requirements. You know, you're supposed to have vital signs within an hour of discharge. Um, and so she had had them after her morphine, but had not had them exactly at the time of discharge. On further questioning, you found out, and I think a lot of the ED staff thought, oh, great, she's back again, you know, what's going on here? On further questioning, it turns out when she came to the ED, she had not had anything to eat or drink. Then she was kept NPO in case she had something surgical. Now, then she was discharged, so it turned out she'd had nothing to eat or drink in 12 hours. She had no transportation home, so she was walking to the bus stop, which is near the hospital, you know, to wait for the first bus of the morning you know, to go home. So again, luckily she was okay, but that could have been a very, very bad scenario. And, and I see this happen a lot. You know, I, whenever I'm working out, people have to go out in a wheelchair and wait for someone to pick them up. So just a few take-home points about discharge planning. As you really, and especially with trauma patients, we see a lot of trauma patients in emergency departments. I mean, my hospital is a trauma center, but even if you're not a trauma center, and so they get procedures, they're there a long time, they get analgesic agents. You really have to road test the patient, and there's some key things you need to look at, which of course are discharge vital signs, and that's really what will come back and bite you medically legally. The patient will look great, but they'll have this heart rate of 110, and then something happens, and then that's the first thing the attorneys see. They need to, it's good to make sure they can tolerate fluids. You know, most EDs keep Gatorade, water, something available. You know, what is their pain level? What's their transportation home? Can they even, are they even in a state where they can understand their discharge instructions? Or they may be in too much pain, or they've been through a very traumatic event, so it's going to be hard for them to maybe take all this in. So is there another friend or caregiver you can get permission to talk to? And then, uh, You'd like to go over their discharge medications and what they're doing for follow-up. 
And this uh, little table here is from our website and a, and a learning module that we have and on our dosing guide. And these, um, if you go to the PAMI website, I've got some cards up here with the website. These case scenarios are there if you want to use them for teaching. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Alexis, and she's going to go through some other cases uh, of things that happen in the ED. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. So I don't mean to scare you, but these are kind of worst-case scenarios. When I was invited by Dr. Henry and Payne Week to speak, I thought I don't have all the great cases that I want to talk about. So I pulled friends nationally, sent out some emails, and I got back a plethora of these horrifying cases that made me probably do too many CAT scans over the next month of everybody. But they highlight some of the good take-home points from the ED. And what Dr. Hendry speaks about is so true. We're rushing around, we're doing CPR, then we have an ankle sprain. Our minds are a little bit scattered, but we really want to pay attention to each case, and we want to pay attention to red flags. So these cases just highlight the idea that first impressions, they really can fool you, and you have to owe it to yourself, owe it to the patient, to dig a little bit deeper sometimes and make sure you really get the history before you make your discharge plan. So case three is an 18-year-old male, history of schizophrenia, he comes in from the group home, writhing around, histrionic, you're not really getting much history, and at this point you have this patient rolling around on the floor, disrupting your entire emergency department, and you really have to get control of this patient. So you, of course, want to make sure the patient is safe, you want to get some vital signs, and you're really not able to do anything. So we have security in our hospital. They scoop him up, they put him on the bed, but you have to make a decision about how you're going to treat this gentleman. When the group home counselor arrives, they said, you know, he's very histrionic, he's always acting out, he's always having complaints of abdominal pain. He typically does have to be sedated. And you say, well, you know what, I think at this point we at least have to make sure that he's safe. We don't have a heart rate, we don't have a temperature, so you decide you are going to sedate him. And so the easiest way to do that quickly in the emergency department is to do an injection of benzodiazepine intramuscular and at least hopefully take the edge off of their agitation. So that's what we do. We now get some vital signs and we see, gosh, you know, this guy could definitely just be agitated, but he's tachycardic, he's breathing really fast, and we have to kind of get a better idea of what's going on with him. When you pull up his ER charts, you see, yes, he's been in the ER. Yes, he has lots of complaints for abdominal pain. Hasn't had a scan in about a year, so you think, okay, I don't want to irradiate this poor young guy every three months. It's been a year. does have some chronic issues. Do we order labs? Are we going to get CAT scan imaging? So all this goes through your mind, and you're trying to figure out exactly what you're going to be doing as you're being pulled to another room. And, of course, you have some influences from your staff. Unfortunately, you know, we've been doing this a long time, and we do have a lot of malingering and a lot of patients who come in for secondary gain. And, unfortunately, they can skew your perception for people who are not presenting like this. So they say, listen, doc, you know, he's here all the time. He just wants to be sedated. He's always agitated, always histrionic. But you cannot get an exam. So this is where the first impression will fool you. If you decide, I'm going to let this guy hang out, He's, you know, the edge is off, he's in the bed, I don't need to examine him, he's a young guy, he's been here before, I'll come back in 30 minutes after I go see whatever else is going on next door. That that's, might be a problem, and for this case scenario, you know it's going to be. So, you know, we need more sedation, we need to figure out exactly what's going on, and we need to enable ourselves to really rule out badness. So we did Ad Ativan, we did Haldol, and then in about 15 minutes, finally, he's calm, you can go and you can examine him. And unfortunately, his belly is rigid. There's tenderness, These are, this is not a good sign. So if you had let this guy chill in the bed for 30 minutes, 
probably something bad would have happened. So you really have to remind yourself a physical exam is so important, especially when you cannot get a good history. Repeat vital signs after for Vadivan and Haldol show that he's still tachycardic, and now he's actually getting a touch hypotensive. You had sent off lab work when you were doing your physical exam. He was sedated, and this is what the lab calls you with. So the white count is high, not good, and the lactate is horrifying. So, oh, crap. So this is not a good sign. There's end organ damage. Something is going on in his belly. At this point, we owe it to him and ourselves to go ahead and take this a step further, and he does need imaging. And if that requires more sedation, then that requires more sedation. But we cannot leave these vital signs and these laboratory studies without really piecing the full picture together. And this is what you see on the plain film, because sometimes CT can take a little long. He had volvulus, and he had to go to the OR. So when he first presents, he's histrionic, he's disruptive. You are, again, being pulled in a couple different directions. You are sedating, but you, know, this, you can be skewed by your perception of some of these patients, especially with mental illness. But just because they have mental illness does not mean they do not have true disease. So the take home from this case is do what you need to do to get a full workup and to have a full exam on him before you make a discharge plan. Another case where you have a difficult time with history is a 37-year-old male, developmental delay. He's living with his caretaker. They're watching TVs, having some Doritos. He looks fine. But then she said he starts to get very agitated. He stands up. He's pacing. He's rubbing his chest. He does not seem comfortable. So they opt to bring him into the ED. So he's 37. You know, cardiac risk factors are not really there. You see his heart rate's very elevated. He's hypertensive. You look in his mouth. You think maybe he swallowed something. Maybe he's got a little bit of acid reflux with those delicious Cool Ranch Doritos. And you're not really finding much. So you do a quick portable bedside x-ray. You don't really see anything. His heart looks good. His lungs look good. He doesn't then drop a lung and have a pneumothorax. So you give him what we call a GI cocktail in the ER. So a little bit of delicious viscous lidocaine, maybe some Maalox, and some famotidine. He's really not getting any better. The GI cocktail was not effective. He's getting a little bit more agitated. You're kind of thinking, gosh, what's going on with this poor guy? I'm getting no history. So you decide to give him some sedation just so you can get him in the bed. You can get him a little bit comfortable, maybe do an electrocardiogram. And do we do labs? So we do labs, and the white count comes back elevated. You threw a troponin in because, again, even 37-year-olds can have heart attacks. Troponin looks fine. He's persistently tachycardic, but just a sinus tachycardia on the EKG. So at this point, you really have to scan him. He's pacing, he's in pain, vital signs are abnormal. We're not really seeing anything to indicate why he's in so much distress. And with no history, you're really left having to do a broader, you have to utilizing more resources to do a broad differential diagnosis. For the CT scan, he does require some fentanyl, he does require a little bit more sedation, but on the CT scan, you see what's going on. So he has pneumomediastinum, which indicates that there's a perforation somewhere in one of the medial sinal structures, and obviously that's a cause for significant distress and left untreated significant morbidity. When you call GI, because you assume he's eating the Doritos, what's going on, GI scopes him, and this is a real case, they found a little chip of Dorito lodged in the distal esophagus with a large esophageal tear. So again, don't mean to scare you. <laughs> Your next patient who comes in eating Doritos is going to get a CT and endoscopy. But again, to remind you that without that history, you're really limited and your differential has to be broad. 
last case for lack of history, is an 80-year-old female who comes in. She said, I fell. I just tripped and fell up the stairs. Oh, Miss Smith, were you dizzy? No, 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 I just tripped and fell. Okay. She's got a little bit of pain. She says she's dizzy when she stands up. You see on her vital signs, especially with doing orthostatics, blood pressure supine and blood pressure sitting up, she has a significant drop. So she's orthostatic positive, which indicates you know, that that might have been what caused her fall. Maybe she did get a little bit dizzy, but this is alarming and we want to keep that in mind. You do your physical exam and she's got a little bit of right chest tenderness, okay. You do your EKG, normal. You do your chest x-ray. Again, there's no pneumothorax, there's no rib fractures, and her labs look fine. So this is kind of a syncope workup. So in our emergency department, that would be a patient placed in observation. So they'll be with us for about 23 hours, maybe 48. They get an echocardiogram, they get cardiology consult. You do some routine lab work, see if anything changes. But you have a resident who's on ultrasound and they just want to ultrasound everybody. So they say, Dr. LaPietra, I just want to be complete. Let's do a fast. Yes, 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 that's fine. And on your fast, you see black, which is never good on ultrasound. This is free fluid. This is the liver, this is the kidney, and you need about 200 cc's in the belly to see anything significant, and this is significant. So this is kind of a belly full of blood. So this little old lady who just trip, 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 comes in with really no abdominal pain and ends up with hemoperitoneum in the operating room. So these are just a reminder that you can't trust all your history, and unfortunately you can't even trust your physical sometimes. Starting back with our first two cases that I presented are the psychiatric and special needs patients. The real trouble here is the history and their ability to engage in conversation with you or give an accurate history. Also, their ability to relax and be cooperative with your exam so you can rule out badness, so you can you know, get a good exam on their belly. And you again have to remember that people with psychiatric disease or developmental delay, they have the same potential for medical emergencies, even more so because again, they don't have maybe the awareness, understanding, and ability to communicate with you. You can never go wrong doing a higher resource workup, getting that CAT scan, because again, if you don't have the history and you can't get a good physical, you really need something to help you make your discharge diagnosis. And geriatric patients. We have a special geriatric ER. It has 40 beds. We only see patients 65 or older. We have a special social worker, a special geriatric navigator. And when you work over there, you just know you're going to get slammed from all angles. And the problem is because, unfortunately, geriatric patients do not manifest similar changes in vital signs as young people will. They do not have the same pain perception that young people do. And their labs aren't going to change like the younger population. There was a recent study that looked at fracture pain in younger people and older people. And both age groups, they, uh, they reported the same pain score with fracture. But the younger people and older people with visceral pain, they were widely different. Appendicitis in an 18-year-old, they'll tell you it's an 8 out of 10. Appendicitis in grandma, she'll say, oh, it's a 2 or 3, I just need some Tylenol, send me home. Meanwhile, she's got a perforated appendicitis. And this is studied, this is validated. So in that geriatric population, err on the side of caution, do extra lab work, do extra imaging, you have to make sure that you've really exhausted your workup and that you've come to a conclusion with enough information. 
Case six. So this is a 50-year-old guy who hit a tree after drinking. He walked two miles to the hospital, which you can only do when you're intoxicated. And when he gets there, he you know, smells of alcohol. He's got a little lack on his head. He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, don't worry about it. I just want to rest. Okay, he's got a small little lack on his head. Your resident puts two staples in. He seems to be ambulating. He has no focal neuro deficits. So you say, all right, guy, you can sleep it off, and we'll, we'll take another look at you. Then the nurse comes to you and everything clenches up when she tells you, you know, um, he's really not able to move, we're trying to get him to pee, says he really can't pee, he's having a little bit of shortness of breath, so you swear, sometimes out loud, sometimes internally, and you activate your trauma alert system, which gets the trauma surge and the CAT scan, everybody's prepared now to work up this patient quickly and aggressively. And unfortunately, when you move him into the resuscitation bay, he's not moving his extremities. He is not breathing. You are swearing profusely, very loudly. And you send him off for, can, uh, for pan scans. And that includes a CAT scan of the C-spine, which shows that he has a terrible fracture dislocation of C5, C6. So this was a case from a, a community uh, hospital. And they said that it was just, you know, they had to really revamp a lot of their trauma protocols based on this case. The guy did fine. They called in neurosurgery. He ultimately did okay. But this is just, you cannot trust people who are drinking. Just everything they say, uh-huh, yeah, 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 I gotcha. But really, you can't believe what they're saying. This gentleman walked two miles with a dislocated C5, C6 fracture. And again, these are real cases because they sound like they're made up. So anyway, horrifying. Case seven, 29 year old guy jumps off the building, he's evading police, he eventually gets apprehended and he's brought in. He's doing a little bit of a limp, he says, listen, I just sprained my ankle. Yes, I smoked a little PCP, good for you, sir. He's shackled to the bed, the cops are gonna arrest him. And he's a little bit uncooperative, he does not wanna get undressed, he's got a handcuff to the arm, a handcuff to the foot, so you say, fine, fine. You do your cursory exam, you feel his belly, you know, he's moving his feet, he's just complaining of some ankle pain. And then an hour later, it's always an hour later, I don't know why. An hour later, he uh, has gross hematuria. So then again, you swear. We do a lot of swearing in the ear. And uh, you disrobe him like we should have done from the beginning. And you note a little blood at the urethromiatus. And when you palpate his pelvis, he's got significant pain and he can't really left, lift his left lower extremity. Uh, so he had a pelvic fracture. So again, Drugs and alcohol, good for you, bad for us. Uh, he walked in with a pelvic fracture, and his limp was because he had a fractured pelvis, not because he sprained his ankle, but PCP, the pain perception is not going to be what it should be, and they're not cooperative, and you know, he just got arrested, so he doesn't really want to talk to you. Unfortunately, this gentleman, uh, or fortunately, he did well. Unfortunately, he had a significant injury, and he was admitted to the trauma service. So again, don't be fooled by drugs and alcohol. These, this patient population is really not trustworthy because they're just, they're not cognitively intact. They're impaired, their pain perception is not what it should be. They may not be cooperative or remember, they may not even be able to provide a history for you. So you found someone at the bottom of the stairs, they are seemingly okay, maybe no focal neural deficits, but they don't know how they got there. You cannot trust them, you have to assume the worst. You want to make sure you're constantly reevaluating. You want to make sure that you're activating a high utilization of care, something like a trauma alert, where you're getting the specialists involved early so you can get the workup done quickly. Case eight. We only have a few more cases left. 
33-year-old female, she presents with complaint of abdominal pain. She's maintained on opiates at home. She has a history of chronic abdominal pain as well as lupus. And she says, you know, I have been taking my opiates a little more frequently than normal. My pain's been a little different. And unfortunately, I ran out because I was increasing my dose. Uh, she said, you know, I just think I need a little bit of intravenous, intravenous medication, break my pain cycle, and then I really would prefer to go home. I can follow up with my doc. And you see her vital signs are a bit abnormal, but she is presenting in pain. And you feel her belly, and it's moderately tender. You know, she says, yeah, it, it's a little bit sore, and it's just a little abnormal, but just give me the IV dilaudid. You give her some fluid. You give her the hydromorphone. Give her a little bit of Zofran as well. And after fluid resuscitation, she's still a bit tachycardic. So she has pain meds on board, she has fluids on board, and she hasn't improved much. You now reassess her and she said, Doc, my pain's actually getting worse, I think I need more pain medication. And when you do your physical exam, her physical exam is unchanged. So unfortunately, sometimes our, our past experiences with chronic pain patients may say, well, listen, she's just, she's, she wants more dilaudid, she wants more of that euphoria, because her physical exam is really not unchanged. But we have to give these patients the benefit of the doubt, and we have to treat each acute episode with you know, 20-20 vision and not judge. So you said, all right, I'm going to give you a second dose of pain meds, but we really need to send lab work. You're not improving. You're feeling a little bit worse. Let's see what's going on. Damn lactate comes back at seven. And she's got a bump in her white count. Let me go back and feel your belly. She's going to have rebound tenderness. I know something bad's going on. Really, her belly is the same, but now she's lost it. She's crying. She's writhing around on the bed. And you get this idea that maybe her pain is out of proportion to what you are getting on your physical exam. So at this point, we have to move on to imaging. You know, whether or not she's got some secondary gain or whatever the reason, you have to do, again, a full evaluation and see what's going on, especially she can't make up lactate, so really you just have to get an imaging. And she has a uh, thrombus in the SMA, and she had seven centimeters of ischemic bowel. So this young woman comes in, you know, my pain's changed a little bit. She kind of decompensated while she was with you, but the pain out of proportion to exam is a classic finding we see with ischemic bowel. It's something we learn in medical school and we see again in residency. The patient's really expressing significant painful complaints, but you're not really uh, able to qualify it or quantify it with your physical exam. So trusting what the patient is saying, frequent reevaluation, and utilizing lab work or imaging can be very helpful. Case nine. 62-year-old female who has chronic left hip pain. She's had left hip pain for years. She had the hip replaced. It really didn't help. She's maintained you know, at home. She sees the orthopedic surgeon. And she'd like something with a D, because she hears that it helps. She's had it in the past. I, I've gotten, it begins with a D and rhymes with audit. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Anyway, so. You see your vital signs, and you'll know she's febrile. So this lady is not very cooperative. She wants her intravenous medication. She really is not interested in what you have to say. She's not interested in the imaging you want to do. She just wants the IV dilaudid. You say, my dear, you have a fever, 101.9. That's not a little fever. You are febrile. What's going on? No, 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 doc. It's just because I was out on my porch. I'm really hot. No, no, I just need the dilaudid. Okay. Well, you do give her a dose of pain medication. We don't want her to be suffering, sitting there in pain. After some IV opiates, she agrees to do the x-ray. The x-ray shows she has the hardware in place. It's not fractured, and it's not dislocated. But <laughs> the white count. 
So white count's a little high. It can be a stress reaction. It doesn't necessarily mean infection. White blood cell count can really go either way. But then you add the CRP, ortho said throw the CRP and it can help us, and it's a bit high. That would indicate probably some infectious process is brewing. And you want to do the CT now. So the x-ray doesn't show anything, but with this lab work, with her history, you probably need to go ahead and take a closer look. Now, she does not want the CAT scan. She wants the pain meds. When can I give her a script? She's got to go feed the cat. So you have to do a little bit of negotiating with this young lady, and you say, listen, I'm concerned. you got a fever. You have a high white count. That's sign of infection in your bloodstream. I'll take another dose of Dilaudid, and I can have the CAT scan. So, you know, in a woman who you think is sick, and, you know, she's complaining of the pain, we, we met halfway. She got a little bit Dilaudid, and she got her CT scan. She had an exudated fluid collection around the hardware that is two years old, and it was an abscess. So she ended up going to the OR, hardware was taken out, she had the joint washed out, and she had a complicated hospital course. You know, but patients, they have an idea about what they want, and they are entitled to that. But sometimes we really have to sit down and sometimes negotiate with them and explain to them what's going on and encourage them to come to a reasonable middle ground with you, especially when you have a Um, you have to I really can't yell now. You have to remember that the change in character or the increase in the pain med is something that should spark a question in your mind, what's going on? And when they tell you it's a little bit different, listen to them. These are patients who are managing their pain every day and typically for years. So that's an important piece of history. You also want to remember lab work. Even if they say, Doc, it's the same pain I've always had, Lab work for all the imaging and all of the studies we do, lab work can be a really quick way to rule out any badness and to reassure you that nothing is going on life-threatening. Also, you want to make sure that your physical exam is very thorough and you want to repeat that physical exam. Pain medication is not diagnostic. Just because they feel better because they got morphine doesn't mean they don't have appendicitis. The pain medication was supposed to make them feel better. So don't have reassurance that they feel better in of itself. Make sure that you're evaluating with repeat physical exams, laboratory testing, or even imaging if need be. Last case. 67, this is my case. 67-year-old male comes in for right upper quadrant pain. His vital signs are fine. He has no past medical history. So the resident gets some lab work. They actually get an ultrasound thingy. It's cholecystitis, and everything comes back fine. So he said, this guy's good to go home. He goes home with some acetaminophen. Comes back two days later. Pain is worse. It's unrelenting. So now he gets a full cardiac workup, and now he gets a CT scan because we're not trusting older patients, unfortunately. And it's fine. So you think, all right, thank God, nothing's going on. He doesn't have an ischemic bowel or perforated something, something. And you now give him some tramadol. So we're taking it a little you know, step further. You call his PMD, you make sure they're going to see him in the next couple days. And then I see him, and when he comes in, he's writhing around on the bed. He won't sit down. He's holding his right side. So I think, oh, I'm going to scan this guy. And then I look back. He's had an ultrasound. He's had a CAT scan. So again, I swear. Um, and I think, what am I going to do? So... On review of systems, I say, you know, notice any skin changes? He said, yeah, but nobody really asked me about that. I've had a rash for two days. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes we don't disrobe. A lot of the time we don't disrobe, and we don't look at the skin. So this is what you see. 
This was not him. This is probably a 30-year-old guy. But uh, this was similar to what his rash looked like. He had raging shingles. And this was missed. He had an ultrasound. He had CAT scan imaging. He was sent home on medication that was really not indicated for the condition he had, all because we, you know, didn't ask him to take his shirt off or maybe didn't get a full uh, review of systems. So disrobing the patient is very, very important, especially because they may not appreciate that something on the skin is an important indicator of other things going on. You want to remember the genital urinary area is an area where if a patient comes in and they're septic, you want to examine that area for changes that they may not have appreciated or if they're complaining of pain. Also the axillary areas, often a spot we don't remember to examine, but there could be a large abscess, there could be something going on. And the skin in general, when patients present with back pain, look at the skin. If there's a rash or there's a breakdown or there's an abscess, that you're, you're going to be able to dictate treatment based on what you see. You can also avoid an extensive workup, like in this gentleman, if you could actually get to the root of the trouble by just examining his skin. This was a little chart that I found that identifies by organ system things that are horrible that present with pain out of proportion to exam. So going head to toe, when we look at the eye, things like orbital cellulitis is an ophthalmologic emergency, ruptured globe is huge, and sometimes you know, when the globe is ruptured, there may not be all that much that you're able to appreciate on external physical exam, but things like imaging or doing a little staining test can give you a lot more information. So severe pain in the eye, you have to rule out bad stuff so that you're comfortable with when you come to a conclusion of a diagnosis. Same thing with ear, malignant otitis externa. When we think about throat, Ludwig's angina, or retropharyngeal abscess, it's not just strep throat, but it's something much more significant, and they're complaining of a lot of pain. When you think chest and back, aortic dissection is always the thing I tell my residents. Even if you think it's highly unlikely, think about it. If you don't think about it and rule it out, then it will never be on your radar to diagnose when, in fact, it's happening. Abdomen is mesenteric ischemia, like I mentioned with that young woman. They have so much pain, but you're not getting much when you're examining them. So you just have to remember these entities exist. Abdominal aortic aneurysm and skin, necrotizing fasciitis. So patient says, yeah, I had a little bump a couple days ago. It's a lot worse now. And then you reevaluate in the ER, and that infection can creep up hour by hour. You can see that it's consuming the whole limb, and this can be a very... There's going to be high mortality situation. And then extremity compartment syndrome as well as arterial occlusion. So some of these entities will have a lot of pain, but you may not really appreciate much on physical. But remember, they exist, and they can be treated, and they can, you can save somebody's life. So to finish up, I'm going to hand it back over to Dr. Hendry. Okay. My microphone. Well, you can keep your microphone. Okay. All right. So just a few um, take-home messages to wrap up. Always beware of EMS and triage histories. Take your own, and I'm sure, you know, even if you don't work in the ED, you've all been burned by listening to what someone else has told you. So always take your own history. Uh, don't be afraid to order a higher resource workup, as Alexis mentioned, especially uh, geriatric patients, patients with substance abuse, psychiatric special need patients. And uh, vital signs, very important. Again, especially medically, when you get burned, they go back and look at those vital signs. Always expose the patient. The joke in my ED is I always want people in gowns. And for some reason, our nurses just don't like to do it. So the joke is when I die, I'm going to be buried with a hospital gown 
and an insufflator bulb to do a correct uh, ear exam because those are the two things I'm always asking for in the ED. They like to tease me. I uh, give the benefit of the doubt to chronic pain patients and remember that pain medication is not diagnostic. I know today we've gone over a lot of kind of acute, you know, high profile, exciting trauma type patients, <clears throat> but we do see a lot of chronic pain patients. And one of the things I think that you could do is, you know, the patients that you see is educate them. We made a little video a few years ago. We started an ED palliative care uh, screening program in our hospital. We made the biggest problem we found is patients come in and they had no information. So we started this whole campaign, help us help you. So if you could, you know, if you don't work in an ED setting, if you could help educate your patients, you know, I think we've shown you what a chaotic environment we work in. So if they, if they have chronic pain, if they could come in, you know, with some information, you know, who we could call, a list of their medications, often maybe we're not as sympathetic as we should be. And I've been on the other spectrum with family members with chronic pain, lupus, scleroderma, et cetera. And so I know what it's like to be on the other side as a mother, you know, or a daughter of someone that's suffering in pain. But if you don't know what they've been through, what procedures they've had, the things they've tried to already do to eliminate their pain, it's, it's, it's hard for us to know what to do. So again, you know, educate your patients so, you know, that we can help them when they come in. Um, ED discharge planning is critical. Um, there are, we do have limited resources, limited time. We're actually working on a whole ED discharge instruction kind of toolkit, planning kit. Um, many of us, you know, now with the electronic medical record, you just have to press that button with whatever instructions there are for, you know, migraine or back pain or whatever, and that's what the patient gets. So it's nice to have some other resources. So if you see, you know, where you work, if you see the ED is, you know, that stupid ED, they're always telling them this, or why don't they tell them this, you know, try to reach out to them and give us some tools that we can use for our patients. You know, we want the same thing that you do. We're just in a different environment. Um, remember, adverse events often occur after discharge or transitioning of care. Maybe they're going from the ED to be admitted. They're going from the ED back to a long-term care facility. So it's really important to know, you know, when the last dose of pain medication was given, you know, what the pain score is, what's going on with that patient. And then a large proportion of ED patients really have no resources except for us. And so it's not, you know, if there are places they can go that we can give them that information and they are at very high risk for bounce back. So one of our red flags is when we know someone was just seen in the ED and they come back, you know, we hate to see that when they come back because often it means we've missed something or there's a problem. And uh, we love cases. We're trying to put together a whole little library of case scenarios. So if you have any that you would like to share with us or mention to us today, you know, here's our email addresses. Got some cards up here. We'd love to have them, and um, we love to teach. We both, um, Alexis actually helped start American College of Emergency Physicians has started a pain section, and so pain management is very big in emergency care now. If you looked at our journals, there's probably three or four key emergency medicine journals. Two years ago, three years ago, you might see one pain article every two or three months. Now every issue probably has at least two and sometimes five or six pain-related articles. So um, again, um, we'd like for you to help us take better care of our patients. And we, again, we welcome your feedback and we'll open it up. We have lots of other cases we could go over. I was sitting here thinking while Alexis was talking of, oh, I forgot about that case and that case. But we'll open it up now for, for questions or comments from the audience.
Any feedback? Is this kind of what you wanted to hear? The kind of cases you wanted? Did you want more chronic, or did you think there was a good mixture? Or 